If we go back to the beginning of the story, we see a holy God who speaks everything into existence. He is the creator of all things. He places a man and a woman in a garden and he creates them in his own image. He gives them one rule, one law. He tells them not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They eat of the tree and sin and corruption enter into God's creation. Adam at the fall as our first father corrupts creation and brings death to all of his posterity. But very quickly in the story, God intervenes on behalf of humanity. And we see that he has purpose to bring redemption and restoration. And he has chosen to do so in a clear promise that he makes there in the garden of a seed who is to come from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, namely Satan, crushing sin and death. The seed is Christ, the promised Messiah of who we just sung about and read about in Hebrews. And so as we've walked through these first 17 chapters of Genesis, there has been this ongoing expectation of the seed who is to come. And that expectation will carry itself through all of Genesis and throughout the entirety of the Old Testament as the people of God, the covenant people of God, the nation of Israel, wait with expectation for Messiah to come. And we see God bringing about clarity of the Messiah who is to come through the promises and the covenants that he makes with his people. Over the last several weeks, we've considered this covenant promise that God makes with Abraham of of this nation that will come from him and will bless the nations. And although Abraham, who is the father of a nation, a hero of the Bible, has proven himself to be a fallen, sinful man, just like the fathers who came before him, And from time to time, he tries to do things in his own power, in his own time, in his own ways. We see that he is a man of obedience to the Lord. And his obedience to the Lord is an evidence of the faith that he has in the promise. The trust that he has in Yahweh to bring about redemption and restoration to this fallen world. And so over the last several chapters of Genesis... We have seen God establish and reaffirm this promise that was made all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 in the first three verses. He will create a people for himself. From the seed of Abraham and the nations will be blessed by the seed. And so as we come to Genesis 18 today, the tension over the last several chapters has revolved around this one particular issue. Abraham and Sarah do not have a son yet. And here in chapter 18, for the last time, we will deal with the issue of the son who is to come. And over the next several weeks, as we continue in chapter 18, 19, and 20, uh, the, the issue of Isaac's birth is really becomes a non-issue in the story until we come to chapter 21 in a few weeks where we see Isaac's birth. And so the tension really comes to a climax today, but we won't see the resolution until a few chapters later in chapter 21. But here in these first 15 verses that we're about to look at together here in chapter 18, we see this. God redeems a people for himself by the impossible. 
God has chosen a people for himself, for his own glory, for his own namesake, and he redeems them by means that we would deem impossible from our human perspective. And so I want us to consider that today as we look at these verses. Let's begin by reading in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 8. It says, There in verse 18, as the story really continues from last week in chapter 17, it says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant." Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. As we consider this truth this morning, God redeems a people for himself by the impossible. These first eight verses really set the stage for the main thrust of the passage that comes later in verses 9 through 15. But as we consider that God redeems a people for himself, in these first eight verses, we come to learn something very important about these people, this covenant people that God is redeeming for himself. And that is this, God fellowships with his people. There are several unique things that we see here in these first eight verses. First, uh, the setting here, we see that once again, Abraham is by the oaks of Mamre. This is the third time in the story of Abraham that we've been told that Abraham is at this location. He has come to this point where the Lord has brought him, and up to this point in the story, he has remained there. Look where his tent is. He sat at the door of his tent. His tent has remained there at Mamre, just as the Lord had brought him. We contrast this with his nephew Lot, who earlier in the story moved his tent from outside of the walls of Sodom to inside the walls of Sodom, the city of sin. But here, Abraham has remained where the Lord has brought him. Another little bit of information that proves to be important to the story is there at the end of verse 1 that he's there at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer tells us here what time of day it is. This would be the time of day where they would have rested. They would not have looked to work during this time of day. They most certainly would not have looked to entertain guests. And yet, verse 2 says, Abraham lifts up his eyes and he sees three men standing in front of him. Now, as we read the passage and we continue later in verses 9 through 15, it is very clear that it is the Lord who has come to Abraham's tent on this day to fellowship with him. In fact, Moses, when he writes this in verse 1, says, And the Lord appeared to him. It is very clear to Moses and to the readers that this is Yahweh. That's the word that Moses uses there in verse 1. And the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to him. But there's kind of an interesting Uh, dilemma that we have in the fact that it's three men who were standing before him. So a couple of questions come to mind. First of all, if this is the Lord and Moses, the writer, and and the audience knows this, did Abraham realize that it is the Lord? I think the answer is yes. 
And I think Abraham knew immediately in the story that the Lord had come to him. Now, some commentators think that maybe at the first part of the story, he thinks they're just messengers from the Lord. And then later he realizes that it's the Lord. But I think there's a couple of clues that we see here in the text that help us to see that Abraham most certainly knew that the Lord had arrived at his tent on this day in the heat of the day. Notice, firstly, the response that he has. How quickly and with what haste he goes to prepare this meal for them. Uh, It says there in uh, verse um, 2 that he ran from the door of the tent. Uh, There in verse 6, he went to uh, Sarah and quickly into the tent. He went to her and he said to her, quick. So he, he, he runs from the tent. He quickly goes to Sarah. He tells her to hurry up and prepare food. Then in verse 7, he then runs to the herd. And then finally, at the end of verse 7, it says that he, took, he told this young man to prepare the food quickly. I think his response of haste and wanting to run to the Lord and to prepare this meal shows that he most certainly knows that it's the Lord. But we also see something else here in how he addresses the Lord in verse 3. Look what he says there in verse 3. He says, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your Servant. Now, we, we have to go to the original text here to understand that the word that he uses for Lord in verse 3 is very different from the word Lord that's used in verse 1. The word for Lord in verse 1 is the word Yahweh, but in verse 3 he uses the name of the Lord Adonai, which means master. Now, something interesting about this, later when we get to chapter 19, when Lot addresses the two angels that come to him, he calls them my lords. He uses this word in the plural, but here Abraham addresses the Lord in the singular. And so with these two things, I think it's clear that Abraham knows that the Lord has shown up to his tent on this day. So he prepares a meal to have with him. Now, the second question that we need to address for a moment is, These three men, the Lord, who exactly is there? Uh, Again, what is plain to the text is that it is the Lord who has appeared. Now, is it the Lord and two angels? Is this some sort of threefold manifestation of the Lord? We know that God has revealed himself to us in the Trinity. Uh, There's some debate as to exactly what we see here. Here's, Here's what I think. Very simple and to the point is this. I believe that we see here Christ pre-incarnate Christ here on the scene and he arrives with the two angels that later depart in the story and go to Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now we could get into this a lot more, but I want us to consider what we saw earlier in chapter 16 with Hagar. Remember in 16, the angel of the Lord came to Hagar and there we said that potentially that is Christ and that is how that has been understood throughout church history. This too has been understood as the pre-incarnate Christ who comes to Abraham on this day. Now, The New Testament does not affirm that in this particular case, that this is Jesus on the scene. But we do see in the New Testament this idea that when God manifests himself in the Old Testament, that it is the pre-incarnate Christ. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it says that it was Jesus Christ who led the people through the wilderness. So I think it's safe to say that this is Jesus who has come to Abraham. The Lord has come to Abraham with these two angels. But do not miss this. What is abundantly clear is that it is Yahweh. God, the creator of the universe, has come near. He has condescended. He has come to Abraham's tent to share a meal with him. The significance of this, what we see in verses 1 through 8, is this. Abraham, who is the recipient of this covenant promise, was a friend 
of God. He had fellowship with the holy creator God of the universe. Meals are used throughout scripture to convey intimate fellowship. And so we see a meal that happens at the ratification of the covenant in, at Sinai and in Exodus. Jesus often uses imagery of staying people's homes and, and fellowship and eating meals together. Uh, the union that we celebrate as the church with Christ happens at a meal at the Lord's Supper at communion. Then you get to the end of the book and it tells us that we will fellowship one day at this banqueting table. A meal is a place where intimate fellowship happens, and here it is no different. Abraham had intimate fellowship with God. This covenant-making, covenant-keeping, holy creator God of who we just sang about has known his people intimately. And he desires to fellowship with his people. This is an overwhelming and humbling reality. Stop for just a moment and consider the fact that the one who created all things desires to have fellowship with his people. When I was growing up, I lived and breathed basketball. There was not a day of my life where I didn't have a basketball in my hand. And as any boy who loved basketball in the 90s, I was a huge Michael Jordan fan. I most certainly wanted to be like Mike. And as a, as a child, nine-year-old Nathan, if you were to come to nine-year-old Nathan and say, you know what, Nathan, Michael Jordan wants to come to your house and spend the afternoon in your driveway and play basketball with you. I would not know how to respond to that. Michael Jordan wants to come to my house and play basketball with me. There would be nothing that would stop me from meeting that appointment. I would be there to fellowship with Michael Jordan. He's the greatest. He was my hero. The prospect of spending time with the goat. Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm going I'm to take you up on that. I'm going to be there. The God of the universe desires to have fellowship with his people. How often, though, do we disregard this fellowship that we can have with Creator God throughout our days, setting our affections and our attentions and our attitudes and our thoughts on fleeting things, worldly things, created things, instead of giving our lives completely over into fellowship with this God who loves us and made a way for us to have relationship with Him now, unfortunately, in the Christian life, we oftentimes compartmentalize the Christian life, and we think that we only worship God on Sunday mornings or during our quiet time. Fellowship with God does not, is not limited to the five minutes that we spend in our quiet time in the morning. Fellowship with God is something that we, as the people of God, do throughout every moment of every day of our lives. And we think back to chapter 17 last week where God said to Abraham, walk before me. And we look back in Genesis to Enoch and Noah and others who walked with the Lord. The relationship that we have with God is not limited to five minutes in a morning. It is a daily walk with him. As the shepherd walks behind his sheep and guides them by his voice, we walk in fellowship with God in everything we do, whether we're in the cubicle at work or whether we're on vacation or we're mowing the grass. In every moment of life, we are to live in fellowship with this holy God. 
Now, how does this happen? Primarily, it happens by his word before us and his spirit within us. God has revealed himself to us in a book. And we can have fellowship with him by knowing who he is, what he's done, what he's promised to do, and what he calls us to be as his people. And the only way we can come to know these things is through the word of God. If we are to be people who fellowship with God, we must be people who swim in the pages of scripture daily. And as we walk throughout our days that we would then allow the spirit of God to guide us and convict us and lead us by the word. So that when we come to the point on any given day where we find ourselves discouraged, the spirit of God convicts us by the word and says, do not be discouraged. When we come to a moment in our days where we find ourselves fearful, the spirit of God convicts us by the word and says, fear not. When we come to a moment in our days where we find ourselves full of anxiety and anxiousness, the Spirit of God convicts us by the Word and says, be anxious for nothing. When we think that we've arrived in this life and we have all the answers, the Spirit of God convicts us by His Word and says, think of others as more important than yourselves. And when we find ourselves in seasons of sin, the Spirit of God convicts us by the Word and says, repent and believe the gospel. This is what it means to live and walk in fellowship with God, to be led by his word before us and his spirit within us each and every day. But when we consider fellowship with holy creator God, we must understand this first and foremost, that this type of fellowship with God is only made available in and through the work of Christ at the cross. Some of you have come here today seeking relationship with God. And and, and in your mind, you might think that relationship with God is an experience or an emotion or simply coming to this church. You're seeking relationship with God today in and of yourself by your own means. Hear me today. The only way we have access to the Father is through the blood of Christ. Fellowship with God is found in Christ alone. So if you want to have relationship with the creator God of the universe today, believe in Jesus. Look to the cross of Christ where Christ died for your sins, where his blood was spilt to atone for our sin and death, and he rose victorious from the grave. Believe in him, and then and then alone will you find fellowship with the holy God. God desires to have fellowship with his people. And as humbling as that prospect is, What is far more humbling is how this fellowship comes about, as we see in the last few verses of this chapter. We pick up in verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. 
And he said, no, but you did laugh. We see here that nothing is too difficult for God. The section here begins with a rhetorical question that we see throughout the pages of Scripture where God asks a question that we know he knows the answer to full well. Where is your wife, Abraham? He knows that she is in the tent. And so Abraham says she's in the tent. Now, just a a little important detail here. Notice that Abraham starts the story at the door of his tent, but when he sees the Lord, what does he do? He runs from the door of the tent to fellowship with the Lord. But notice where Sarah remains throughout the story. She remains in the tent. She is not eager to fellowship with the Lord. She stays in the tent And so God comes and he reveals something about the promised son that you might have missed last week that he's already told us. So last week in chapter 17, verse 21, it said there at the end, it said, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And so we've seen this gradual progression of revealing the promise to Abraham. So all the way back in verse 12, it's very general, very broad. There in chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Then we come to chapter 13, and he says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. A little more specific. And then in verse 15, we saw God say, your very own son shall be your heir. More specific. And then last week in chapter 17, it said, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And here, God finally, after all this time of waiting, puts a time frame on this whole thing. This son will be born within the year. Now, the details here that have been given to us are details we already know, but the writer wants to emphasize it again. Verse 11, don't miss this. Abraham and Sarah were old. Advanced in years, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. This has been the tension since chapter 11 where the writer tells us that Sarah is barren and they just keep getting older and older and older. And here the writer says that she is no longer able to bear children. The prospect of having a son is now an impossibility. In the eyes of Abraham and Sarah, it is an impossible thing to consider that God would bring them a son. And so Sarah's listening from the tent, and what is her response? She laughs. Now, this is not the first time laughter has been important in the story. You remember last week, Abraham laughed, but Sarah's laugh seems to be a little different. Where when Abraham laughed last week in chapter 17, verse 17, he preceded that by falling on his face. And his laughter just seems to be more of a natural response to the prospect of having a child in his old age. But here, when Sarah laughs, the Lord rebukes her. Her laugh seems to come more from a place of discontentment and a lack of faith in the Lord. And she acknowledges her plight. There in verse 12, am I to have a, a child when I am worn out? I love that. You ever just feel worn out? I'm worn out. I'm an old lady. How in the world will a child come from me? So the Lord responds with two more questions. He first says to Abraham in verse 13, why did Sarah laugh? Again, God knows the answer to this question. And then another rhetorical question in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord. We'll come back to that in a moment. Notice how the Lord responds, though, to Sarah's disbelief. He reaffirms the promise in verse 14. At the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. 
in spite of her apparent lack of faith, God reaffirms the promise and he says, this will happen according to my will and my plan. Sarah denies the laughter, but the, but the name of her son Isaac will serve as a reminder to her and Abraham both for the rest of their days of their response to the promise. They laughed. Isaac means laughter. Now, to get to the heart of this, we need to just stop for a moment. There's, there's a really important lesson that we learn here in how we interpret the Bible. How do we get to the main idea of the passage? It's really easy in the, in the epistles because the writers tell you, this is why I'm writing to you. But when we get to the stories, the narrative of Scripture, it's oftentimes hard to find what the meaning of the text is. And so anytime you read the Old Testament or, or narrative in Scripture, when God speaks, run to what he says to find the meaning of the text. We saw this a couple weeks ago in Genesis chapter 16 when we asked the question, what on earth do we do with Hagar? Well, the answer is in the dialogue that she has with God. God makes it clear that he hears and sees in his speaking to Hagar. And here it is no different. The main thrust of the passage is the answer to the question in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? This is the appointed time for the child to be born according to God's timing, his will, his plan. The child wasn't supposed to be born in chapter 11 or chapter 12 or chapter 13 or chapter 14, 15, 16, or 17. Now is the time that the Lord has appointed for the child to be born. After all human efforts have been exhausted, the incident with Hagar, the laughter of Abraham and Sarah, Abraham offering Ishmael to the Lord. How about this one, God? God says, no. Isaac is the one. And he will come according to my plans. One theologian had this to say about this text. He said, God waits until it is humanly impossible for the child of the covenant to be born. In order to show that it is not by human effort that the covenant people will be created. It is a work of divine and sovereign grace. The formation of a people of God for the sake of his name from all the families of the earth is not a human creation. That is why Ishmael would not qualify as the covenant child. Symbolically, he stood for the work of the flesh, the product of Abraham's presumption and unbelief. This is not the first time in scripture or the last time that we see God working through the impossible. In the book of Matthew, chapter 1, Joseph comes on the scene. And there, in verses 18 through 25, the writer wants to make something abundantly clear. The birth of Messiah is not of Joseph. It is of God. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Not Joseph. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. It is God. Verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Again, it's not of Joseph. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is of God. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin, it's not of Joseph, shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. At at the end there in verse 25, it says, But Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. It's not of Joseph. Later in Luke chapter 1, there when Mary interacts with the angel, she says to the angel, am I to have a child when I've never lain with a man? This is impossible. What does the angel say to her there in Luke 1.37? Nothing will be impossible with God. Salvation comes to us by the impossible. How is it that all the families of the earth, every tribe and tongue, have access to the Father? By faith in the seed of Abraham, in the impossible. Jesus Christ is that seed. And so as we talked about last week, we are not offspring of Abraham by our own strength, by our works, by circumcision or religion or church or reading our Bible. We are offspring of Abraham by faith. And the one who came and crushed the head of the serpent. And so God creates a covenant people for himself by the impossible. So the answer to the question, is anything too hard for God? The answer is clear, friends. It is no. One theologian said this, To understand the whole living process of redemptive history in the Old Testament, we must recognize two basic truths. First, is that this salvation history is a process. And we've seen that just in the last few chapters. But second, this theologian goes on to say, is that this process of redemptive history finds its goal, its focus, and fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. This is the principle underlying this book. God uses the impossible to show us salvation does not rest in our own power, but it comes from his hand alone. There in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler and he says to him, sell all your possessions and follow me. And what does the rich young ruler do? He leaves and Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, it's easier for the camel to enter through the eye of the needle than for the rich man to enter in to eternity. And do you remember what the disciples said to Jesus there? They said to him, Lord, then who can be saved? And then Jesus said this in Mark 10, 27, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And so as we close this morning, we come to this place, each of us bearing burdens today. And many of you are burdened for the prospect of the lost in this world, the prospect of the lost, lostness of a loved one, a friend, a co-worker. And sometimes we can think to ourselves, It's impossible. I can never reach them with the gospel. And so missionaries right now throughout this world are asking themselves, what about the Muslim? How can a Muslim come to faith in Christ? How can their eyes be open to the truth of the gospel when they've been blinded? What about the atheist whose heart is so hardened? To God and the gospel. He is a despiser of God. What about the atheist? 
What about the unreached peoples and places of the world where right now there are billions of people on planet earth who will live and die and never once hear the gospel? Who will go to them? What about them? It is an impossibility, Lord. Some of you come into this place this morning and you say, Lord, what about my wayward child? What about my wayward spouse? What about the grumpy old grandpa who's on his deathbed, who's despised Jesus all of his days? Can he believe and be saved? And when we ask these questions, I want us to to answer the questions with questions like this. What about Baron Sarah? What about the Virgin Mary? What about the empty tomb? Nothing is impossible with God. But we must preach Christ. The hope of the impossible rests in our faithfulness to proclaim the gospel. So do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in preaching Christ to those around you. God has intervened on our behalf in an impossible way. And by his grace, we have come to know and sing of and read of and consider this morning the hope of the gospel. Rest in that today. Salvation is not of your own doing. It is of God by grace through faith in Christ alone. Rejoice in that today, dear one. And go to those who have yet to hear and share with them the hope of heaven. The story of redemption is the story of a God who saves a people for himself, who creates a covenant people for himself from every tribe and tongue by the impossible. And he does it all for his glory and for our good. So trust him today. Obey him today. Let's pray.